Christian, why are you here this morning? Why are you at church? What compels you to leave your warm bed and gather with your brothers and sisters today? I want you to actually answer that question in your mind right now. It's not a rhetorical question. And then take that question and also make it corporate. As an entity, why does New City Baptist Church exist? Why has a group of Christians known as Mount Pleasant Road Baptist Church been meeting here in this place for over a century? To what end? What are we doing in Toronto? What is our mission? Is this pattern just a mere preference of North American culture? Or is it the biblically mandated shape of our discipleship to Christ? Or is it somewhere in between? Brothers and sisters, these questions point us to a pressing need. We need to know what God says about the purpose of the church so that as a body, we might live in self-conscious conformity to that purpose. 1 Corinthians 14.8 says this, If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, and this is in the context of corporate worship, who will get ready for battle? And it is in this spirit that we are going to take a break from our series in the Gospel of Mark that Pastor John's been preaching to focus on these kind of questions in a three-part topical series. Because this is critical to the decision that lies before our two churches later today. If we are to unite as one church later this afternoon, our ships need to be sailing by and large in the same direction. Doesn't mean there will be a wide variety of preferences or differences in conscience represented in the merged church. In fact, there should be, there will be, if we are basing our church on the gospel alone, and more on that next week. But broadly speaking, we need to be on the same page when it comes to our big picture purposes. What we don't want is Pastor Alex and Pastor John leading the charge in a certain direction that maybe looks good to the two of us that we believe is biblical, but which you, the members, don't fully understand, that you're not fully on board with, that you're not committed to. Let me illustrate why this is important. Take human marriage, for instance. Think about when you first learned what human marriage points to. It is a portrait of the covenant relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Just knowing that truth as a Christian empowers and motivates change in our marriages as nothing else can. Just knowing that biblical truth. We desire to be husbands and wives of a different ilk. Agreeing on the biblical purposes of a church, of a local church, should have a similar effect on us as members. And that's what we pray the Lord will work in the members of both Mount Pleasant and New City over the next three weeks as we, Lord willing, take our first steps in covenant together. You can see a summary of the whole series that is in front of us in the next few weeks. It's in the, the insert in your bulletin. It says this, The purpose of the church, the proper end for a local congregation's life, is threefold. Worship, edification, evangelism. And these three purposes, in turn, serve the glory of God. And so over the next three weeks, Pastor John and I are going to be defending this summary from God's Word. There is, of course, overlap between those three things, and there is both individual and corporate dimensions to each of them. But all together, it is difficult to think of anything critical to the church that doesn't fall under one of those categories. Think of them as three hooks to hang your membership hat on. And the first one we're going to consider today is worship. This is a massive topic. And so before we do, let me just pause here to pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would grant me grace as we look upon a topic, a whole Bible theology of worship. 
Lord, any time we are not constrained by a single text here in the pulpit, there is danger. So, Lord, I ask that you would have been gracious to me in this preparation, that it would feed indeed the flock who is here in the truth of your word. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Christian worship is, of course, a very slippery term to define. In recent years, you may have heard of something called the worship wars. That's been referenced sort of in our evangelical world. This refers broadly to the debates about music, in particular in the church gathering. There are your rock concerts, smoke machine, guitar riff that takes you to the third heaven, Christians over here. You've all been to those kind of churches. And then there's the standard attention, psalms only, and no instruments on the other side. And in between, there's gradients, and all of them, to some degree, bicker with one another. I bring this up now not so much to get right into music here at the beginning. We will get to that. It's part of corporate worship. But I bring this up at the outset just to say this understanding of the word worship is very unhelpful to our exercise today. Christian worship does not equal music. It does not equal how we sing when we meet together. Christian worship, that is the worship of God's people between Pentecost and the second coming of Christ, encompasses so much more. And you can see this in the big picture in your handout. The individual worship of God occurs in the context of one's daily life, while the corporate worship of God occurs in the context of the assembled congregation. Shaping and encouraging both corporate and individual worship are significant aspects of the local church's purpose. And so just from that summary alone, we see we have a significant task on our hands today. Worship, again, is a huge theological concept To simplify today, we are largely going to use those two categories I mentioned in that big picture. There is individual or all-of-life worship, and there is corporate worship. But there's one caveat before we get right into that. This breakdown begs a question. What do I mean by the word worship? Worship alone. You'll see that I've included an absolute monstrosity of a definition. It's on the insert in your bulletins. It's from our friend, Dr. Carson. To unpack this definition, line by line, would be a sermon series really unto its own. So in a moment, what I'm going to do, just to give us some context, is read the opening sentence. And then at various points in the sermon, I will circle back to it to help us along. Worship. Carson writes, is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. This first sentence is critical background to our task this morning. It's where many go off course. Christian worship is not an end in itself. It is not defined by its own novelty or its own aesthetic beauty, but by its object. And in Christian worship, that object is God himself, and it is God himself alone. You may have heard a service leader here at New City or Mount Pleasant speak about the linguistic history of the word worship. It's helpful. It derives from the old English term worth-ship. Ascribing worth to something. And that's what worship does mean broadly. In the Bible, it's clear that God's worth is surpassing, such that He is the only one truly worthy of human worthship. In our fallen state, of course, we default to worshiping ourselves, celebrities, ideals, desires, materials, spouses, families, money, career, comfort, food, our own piety. Even the subjective beauty of our own worship, we worship that. All of that is idolatry. It is misdirected worship. As Christians, we must heed the rebuke of the angel in Revelation 19. At this I, and that's the Apostle John writing, fell at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said to me, 
Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Christian worship is God-focused. It is God-exalting. It is God-oriented. It is God-governed. Back to our big picture. Read this again with that in mind. Again, this whole big picture you see in your bulletin, it really does find its roots in that larger Carson definition. So peruse it if you'd like. The individual worship of God occurs in the context of one's daily life, that is all of life worship, while the corporate worship of God occurs in the context of the assembled congregation, shaping and encouraging both individual and corporate worship are significant aspects of a local church's purpose. Just one more thing by way of kind of broad introduction. Worship mirrors salvation. Here's what I mean. Salvation works like this, and I think we're familiar with this. When we are saved from our sin by faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God. As the great hymn says, we are ransomed, we are healed, we are restored, we are forgiven in the throne room of heaven. And the proper response to that of you, of me, of anyone who believes the gospel is to worship God with all of our life. This is what we call the, we call it the vertical dimension. But when we are saved by faith in Christ, the Bible tells us we are also reconciled and added to a people, the church. And so it is not just as individuals that we worship, but as members of a people that worships. This entity, this group must respond in worship of which we are only a part. Corporate worship with God's people is therefore this unique, this crucial function of our all of life worship to God. It is born out of the gospel, which saves sinners and creates a people. So that two-part breakdown is going to be our basic outline going forward. We're going to begin with individual, all-of-life worship, followed by a look at the corporate worship of God. And I will spend the lion's share of our time on the second one of those. First, turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans 12. Romans 12. We're going to begin with all-of-life worship. Look at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Understanding the context of those two verses is so important. The previous 11 chapters of the book of Romans all play into this therefore in chapter 12, verse 1. It might be the most hanging therefore in the whole Bible. When Paul says, in view of God's mercy, he means everything he has just laid out in Romans 1 to 11. I'm going to give you a Spark Notes version, a TikTok real version of Romans 1 to 11. Every human deserves the wrath of God. We've all suppressed God's truth. We've all embraced sin, Jew and Gentile alike. But God is merciful. He doesn't punish us as we deserve. Instead, he sends his son, Jesus, to be an atoning sacrifice to bear our punishment on his cross. This Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification, reconciling us to God, transferring us from the realm of Adam, where death reigns, to the realm of Christ, where there is life eternal, sending us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and give us the ability to kill remaining sin, all of it due to the mind-boggling, the unmerited, gracious election of each of his people from eternity past. That is Romans 1 to 11 in a nutshell. And at the end of all of that, rightly so, Paul falls flat on his face in verse 33 of chapter 11. And he cries out, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? 
For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then he picks up his pen and he writes, Therefore, worship. In light of everything I've written to you in these first 11 chapters, worship. And it is clear he does not mean by worship here, sing in church. That's part of it. But here, worship is our response to the salvation mercies of God with our entire lives. Lives offered up to God as a living sacrifice. This is holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. Now, we don't have time to give this text its full treatment that it deserves today. But look at that key thought you see in your bulletins. The way we live... In response to the mercy of God lavished upon us in the gospel lies at the heart of Christian worship. Do not conform. Be transformed by the Spirit through the Word. The way we live. Not just what we do on Sunday morning. The way we live. Verse 1 shows us the scope. And verse 2 shows us kind of what that way of life looks like. First, the scope, just to hammer this point home. The scope is total. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. One of the most famous phrases in the whole Bible, and kind of too familiar with it. It doesn't, the strangeness of it doesn't strike us, perhaps, as it should. What's being emphasized here is the absolute totality of the Christian's devotion to God. If I were to give an interpretive paraphrase of what Paul writes here, I'd put it like this. Therefore, in light of the gospel's salvation mercies, there is no longer room for autonomy in your life, Christian. None whatsoever. There is no room in your life for self-directing freedom and moral independence. The language is extreme. But it's also a concept we find all throughout Scripture. Recall last week's sermon on Mark 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. These verses are saying the same thing. Our days of autonomous living are over. We are dead to the world. We are alive in Christ Jesus. And if we start thinking of our whole lives in those terms, then inevitably all of our priorities, all of our aspirations in life, how we think of ourselves and what we owe to God and what we think God owes us will radically change. This is the language of unreserved commitment. A living sacrifice. Paul is taking that imagery from the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, when animals were presented at the tabernacle or at the temple, they had to be alive. And if you're going to present a sin offering at the temple the next day, perhaps you brought it ahead and then you, you know, got a hotel room because you're from far up in Israel, and that animal died in the night or was torn to shreds by wolves, that dead animal was not a suitable sacrifice to offer up to the Lord. Sacrificial animals had to be living. They had to be whole and acceptable to God. They had to be of a certain species, a certain gender, a certain age, no physical defect, healthy, not sickly. Because you sacrifice to Yahweh only your very best. Now to begin with, of course, the sacrifice must be living. But then it also, as a sacrifice, if it is a sacrifice, it must die. It must be put to death. And in light of the gospel mercy we have freely received at Christ's expense... Paul is commanding Christians in verse 1, offer your bodies in the same way. That's his way of saying your whole selves. Offer them as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Christian, God accepts nothing less than all that you have. We have to see that. We must see that from this text. This is our true and our proper worship. And it should help us to radically redefine how we think of worship. 
Yes, regular meetings together of Christians for praise and for mutual edification, they're appropriate. They are commanded in Scripture. We're going to get to it. But these special times of corporate worship are only one aspect of the continual worship that each of us is to offer the Lord in the sacrifice of our bodies day by day. In the home, at work, at school, on the bus, alone in our rooms, in the kitchen, during times of rest and entertainment. How we live in those situations, how we think as we go about our lives in those contexts is offered up to God as Worship. So if you've come here this morning to do something that perhaps you've not already been doing all week long as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, we're not properly understanding biblical worship. And if we go to work on Monday with our head down, get the job done, get the paycheck, looking ahead to Sunday, Thursday for a time next, we will uh, worship God that we are not responding truly and properly to the salvation mercies of our God. We need to understand that as individual church members and as a church as a whole, we have to spur each other on to God-glorifying all-of-life worship. So what does this look like? Well, verse 2 gives us some broad practice. Do not conform, be transformed. Two sides are really the same all-of-life worship coin. To offer up our lives in worship means rejecting the patterns of the world, putting on the ways of the world to come. Don't let this world squeeze you into its mold, and it will try. Refuse to conform to its values. Instead, be transformed by God's values. The ones he has laid out for us in his word. And you'll notice Paul doesn't actually say explicitly how our minds are renewed. But we know from his other writings, I don't have time to prove this this morning, I'm just going to assert this. You can check it out. It's a combination of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. As the spirit works through the word in conjunction with the word. That is how our minds are renewed. That's how we are transformed. And so here's where individual worship does bleed in a bit to corporate worship. Our all-of-life worship requires this steady diet of Bible. We can do some of that ourselves. But one aspect of corporate worship is that it acts kind of like a pit stop, a gas station for our all-of-life worship. So in summary, in this individual section, Individual, all-of-life worship of God occurs in the context of our daily lives. It is the way we live in response to God's mercy lavished upon us in the gospel as we offer up our whole selves, nothing held back, no part off limits. It looks like resisting, being squeezed into the mold of this world, and instead having our minds renewed by the Spirit and the Word. All right, let's turn now to corporate worship. And first of all, we do need to define this because it can be slippery. Right, let's go back to the end of Carson's beastly definition in your insert. This is very, well, it's fun. We'll see. Uh, corporate worship is worship offered up in the context of the body of believers, all right, who strive to align all the forms of their devout ascription of all worth to God with the panoply, that's the full array, of new covenant mandates and examples that bring to fulfillment the glories of antecedent revelation and anticipate the consummation. I know that's a word salad. It's a delicious word salad. But trust me, it is gold. It basically has three parts. Corporate worship is in the context of the gathered church, its elements are constrained by express biblical warrant, and its elements should take on a biblical theological flavor as we praise God for what he has done and what he will do. So first, corporate worship is in the context of the gathered church. Where do we see this in Scripture? Well, the most obvious example is 1 Corinthians 11 to 14. That whole section of Scripture, those four chapters, it has a gathering much like this in view. 
We see that the whole church is gathering very clearly. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. When you come together as a church, uh, 14, 23, the whole church comes together. It seems like this is a, a known and a distinct event that Paul is providing a special set of instructions for. Uh, what, what believers should do in church. That's what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 19. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. It's clear that there is this category of Christian worship that's narrower than our all-of-life sense of the word worship. This pops up also in Acts, in Ephesians, in Colossians, and in Revelation. The gathered church receives instructions for, or is described participating in, acts of worship in a corporate manner. All right, so corporate worship is in the context of a gathered church. It's fairly uncontroversial. Uh, next, its elements are constrained by express biblical warrant. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time remaining here because this is so important uh, for us to understand. Here's the bottom line. We should affirm, we must affirm, that Scripture does teach us what we should do in the church's regular assemblies. Now, don't hear me totally wrong there. There is no exhaustive guide for our corporate worship, but there are a lot of instructions, a lot of examples that we should heed and we should be wary to stray apart from. Yes, everything we do as Christians, as we've already seen, is all of life worship in that sense. But in the corporate sense, God commands order, intelligibility, and word supremacy. 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. In other words, while everything that we do in our lives as Christians is worship, it seems that not all of those things should be present in corporate worship. Here's an analogy for you. Think of a Shakespearean play. You pick any one, really. The script is written. The plot is set. There are certain elements that should or must be present. Romeo and Juliet must die at the end. And yet you wouldn't expect to see a carbon copy of the Romeo and Juliet play you might have saw on Broadway in 1970 or in Toronto this year or even in Rome in 1850. There is some room for interpretation of performance, and yet those interpretations are also not neutral. Some are wise, others are not. Some presentations flop. Others make the non-negotiable elements of the story shine brighter than ever. Now, a major weakness of this analogy when we're talking about corporate worship is that we should be much more hesitant than any Broadway director might be in taking risks what Shakespeare has written when we consider making choices that could sully what God has commanded. And that is why many churches adhere to something that's known as the regulative principle for worship. Uh, broadly, this makes the claim uh, that corporate worship in its content, in its motivation, and its aim is to be determined by God alone in the mandates and examples of the New Testament. Now, it's also true that Christians who hold to this principle disagree over what is included in it. So while Pastor John and I are largely sympathetic to that principle, we prefer to say that our corporate worship, corporate worship should be constrained by the word. All of life worship in obedience to the word, corporate worship as warranted by the word. One other crucial distinction here, and I put this in your bulletins, because it'd be hard to sort of put in your mind, but if you see it written there, it's fairly straightforward. There's a distinction within corporate worship of elements, forms, and circumstances. This is really helpful. Elements are the modes of worship explicitly set forth for us in Scripture. Congregational singing, the public reading of Scripture, preaching. Forms are decisions about how to best carry out those elements, such as whether to accompany congregational singing with instruments or not. Uh, decisions there are informed by biblical principles, but there is no express New Testament command. 
Circumstances are incidental matters of prudence and preference that simply require a decision. We need to decide when to meet on Sunday, what time. That's a circumstance. So what we're going to do now is spend time considering these elements of corporate worship. We'll talk a bit about forms interspersed within there. You can see this in your bulletin. I've listed five broad elemental categories of corporate worship summarized as follows. Read the Bible. Preach the Bible. Pray the Bible. See the Bible in baptism in the Lord's Supper. Sing the Bible. It's not an exhaustive list. There are some other elements, but these are the main ones. Let's comment on each of them quickly. Uh, First, read the Bible. Reading scripture out loud is a commanded part of our corporate worship. It is stunningly sad how this is neglected in many evangelical churches. 1 Timothy 4.13 could not be more clear. The Apostle Paul writes to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. In the early days of the Scottish Reformation, there was a tradition in some of these churches that began to begin their services by carrying a large Bible. Imagine it came in the back door there, and they carried it down one of the aisles, a large Bible, and attended all the way up to the front here, and put it here on the pulpit. And while that happened, the congregation stood. And at the end of the service, the attendant would take the Bible and walk back out. The congregation would stand again, and the service was over. It's a beautiful way to convey the concept of worship under the word. We don't have a tradition quite as formal as that in our churches, uh, but before the service leader reads from a text of scripture, they always say, this is what Holy Scripture says. And when they finish, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, this is intentional. And it must never become an empty formal ritual. When we say those things, we are recognizing Scripture's authority over our lives. We are expressing our gratitude to God for disclosing himself to us in Scripture that we have access to this holy book. That text that John read for us earlier in Nehemiah 8, it speaks to the power of this form of worship even under the Old Covenant. Uh, This is one element of worship that's actually upheld in the same way from the Old to the New. We need to let the word read aloud wash over us and change us. It is a joy to read scripture out loud. If it takes 10 minutes, that is our privilege. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second element, preach the Bible. Paul is again writing to Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing at his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. This element must remain at the very center of our corporate worship. As we've seen recently in the Gospel of Mark, preaching was at the center of Jesus' ministry in its earliest days. And from Peter in Acts 2 to Paul in Acts 17, it remains the driving force behind the advance of the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, where we often struggle with this element in a worship service is actually viewing preaching as worship, not as something separate. I know I've erred in the past as a Christian, sitting in a pew, thinking, come on, let's get through the worship and get to the sermon. That's what I came for. I've been a pastor long enough to know that there are likely some in this room who slipped in late today thinking basically that in their minds. Or maybe you're the type of Christian who views music as the purest form of worship, and you sort of grin and bear the the sermon and the prayer portions of the service. Beloved, both of those outlooks are dead wrong. We need to train our hearts to delight in God in each way he has commanded his people to worship him. On preaching as worship, John Piper actually has an entire book on this topic. I commend it. It's called Expository Exaltation. Uh, Piper writes this, Preaching itself is worship. 
and is appointed by God to awaken and intensify worship. Preaching is the heralding of a message permeated by the sense of the greatness and majesty and holiness of God. Preaching is not everything, but it affects everything. It's the trumpet of truth in the church. If every part of the engine was in working order, but the spark plug fails, the whole car lurches to a stop. Nothing can replace preaching. Much of the criticism of preaching today centers around, you know, it seems like an authoritarian way to communicate. You may have heard that. The days of monologue are over. It's now all about facilitating conversation. That's not only at odds with the Bible, but also 2,000 years of church history. Mark Dever comments here, One person speaking while others listen is both an accurate and a powerful symbol of our spiritual state and God's grace. A depiction of God's gracious self-disclosure and of our salvation being a gift. We do not deserve it and we contribute nothing to it. Friends, the act of preaching is a time to be silent before God and hear him speak. And in that we ascribe him worth we worship. And there's so much more to say on preaching. We must press on. Element three, pray the Bible. We know the church, the early church, devoted itself, among other things, to prayer. We see that in Acts 2.42. Uh, we get another corporate prayer that rehearses uh, biblical theology in Acts chapter 4. And there's a corporate prayer reading going on when Peter is released in that chapter as well uh, from prison. Uh, Paul later gives regulations for the behavior of men and women during corporate prayer in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. The apostle asked the churches in Rome, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Colossae, in Thessalonica to pray, presumably together, for his ministry. And he also instructs Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus to pray for all men, especially kings and those in high positions. All of that scriptural evidence for us leads me to the conclusion that a church which fails to take corporate prayer seriously is neglecting a key element of corporate worship. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, we all have the same spirit in us. Corporate prayer is a wonderful way of acting out the ontological unity that we have spiritually, as we literally speak together with one voice to God. Corporate prayer is an antidote to disunity. Participating regularly in corporate prayer begins to take out the individualistic assumptions uh, that Christianity is only about me and my relationship with God, and it resituates us as individual Christians in the congregation so that we become aware of uh, that person who is sick, uh, that aspect of God's character we never considered, that sin we should be confessing rather than harboring, that challenge facing believers half a world away. All of it demonstrates our complete dependence upon God. Now, you may have noticed that John and I like to organize corporate prayer by type on Sunday mornings. This is a form decision, not an element. Uh, we do this to try and highlight different ways the Bible models for us to pray as a way to inform all of our prayer lives. Uh, today, John led us in a prayer of praise. This was exclusively a prayer of adoration of God. Other times we have prayers of confession, of lament, of thanksgiving, of invocation to begin a service. And almost every week we'll include what we call a pastoral prayer. This is largely intercession. It's intentional intercession. We intend for this prayer to illustrate the scope and the power of prayer as we pray for small things in the lives of, of some of you and of our church right here in the room. Alongside intercession for world leaders, for persecuted believers, God is equally able to respond in each circumstance. We ascribe him worth as we cast ourselves upon his providence in corporate prayer. Element number four, see the Bible in baptism and the Lord's Supper. I think we can fall into the trap. It's very tempting to think of these two things as being sort of separate unto themselves. They're over here. They're ordinances. But Jesus gives them both to the gathered church. 
1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper is firmly placed in the context of the gathered church. Uh, five times in that chapter in the Lord's Supper, we read, when you gather, when you gather, when you gather. That's when we do the Lord's Supper. Baptism is often in the context of a gathering of the church, too. Uh, it's in, for example, Peter's sermon in Acts 2.41. Uh, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And that's not just an abstract number. That seems to be a reference to the assembly, to the church. They were added to the assembly that was there before Peter as believers. Both ordinances function also as signposts for us. And in this way, they point us Godward in worship. Uh, baptism is this initiating sign that someone is indeed united to Christ by faith. Uh, participating in the Lord's Supper, that's the continuing sign of belonging to the people of God. Uh, both of them are acting out gospel realities otherwise unseen. We can't see someone being converted. We can't see that with our physical eyes. We see it in baptism. We can't see that indeed these are genuine believers all around us. We can't see the spiritual reality of that until we all take the Lord's Supper together and we see the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ for each and every single one of us in the church. And they also point us forward to the final resurrection and to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in them we sort of act out, we see the central storyline of the Bible in the ways God has prescribed these ordinances give our gathering its shape. A church is, after all, nothing more than an assembly of baptized believers who agree on the gospel and take the Lord's Supper together. Element five, we sing the Bible. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ, that's the gospel, let it dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Ephesians 5.19, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of those commands are given to local churches as corporate wholes. That is the context. As the gospel dwells in us richly, we overflow in song to God and to one another. Singing is worship that emerges from a heart staggered by God's mercy and grace in the gospel. And again, it's crucial to see with these commands that Paul is addressing the whole congregation. Yes, even people who don't like to sing, who have off-key singing voices, or who live in cultures like ours where it can feel kind of awkward to sing loudly in public unless it's happy birthday. God commands the whole church to sing, not to hum, not to listen to talented people sing, but to sing from the power of the gospel, from the power of the gospel transformation that we have undergone. It's not a concert. The church is the band. What accompaniment there, there may be that there was up here this morning, that simply serves and supports the church's singing. Piano is a form to serve the element, likewise guitar. So even having anyone at all standing up here and leading us in music, that is a form, not an element. Singing together as one church is an element of corporate worship. It is non-negotiable. We could strip the rest away and still be biblical. In fact, John and I were often challenging and pushing our music teams towards more a cappella as we hear the singing of the church. The New Testament emphasis of music in corporate worship is on the voices of the redeemed. As Paul prays for the church in Rome in Romans 15, he says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Romans 15.5. I'll say a couple more things in the level of forms here in the category of singing the Bible. 
It serves congregational singing to arrange the gathering in such a way that we can better hear and better see one another. I'll just say, when I walked into this building for the first time, I loved that there are pews perpendicular to other pews. We need more people to intentionally sit where Peter is sitting right now. Do it next week. Sing to one another. Working to create good acoustics in the space that we meet, that's also a form that might serve the element of worship. Worship is singing the Bible. And so is keeping the lights on. You've probably been to a church that it's kind of like you can't see anything except for the spotlights on the music leader at the front. I would say the form of keeping the lights on while we sing to one another helps us as we are admonishing and teaching and able to see those who are singing around us. Brothers and sisters, hear this. The eye, the ear, the hand, and the foot may all have their musical preferences, but the body sings as one. In the gathered church, singing has a purpose that is prescribed by God. Any accompaniment must first serve that end. It is not about you and me and what turns our musical crank. We must sing the Bible. Songs that are laced with rich gospel truth. Songs that are conducive to being sung as a congregation. Not songs that are man-centered, emotional, pick-me-up, or difficult musically even to follow. That could be, unless we're, you, know, you practice that and work at it to be able to sing it well. Uh, that focus of being more on our feelings, which has pervaded in singing in the church in recent years. That is off of the biblical focus. We must, as we sing, sing the truths of the Bible, the truths about God's character and the gospel. By way of conclusion, let's attempt to answer one of the questions we began with this morning. Why are we here today? What is the purpose of our corporate worship? I'm going to give you four in fairly rapid succession. Number one, it's exaltation. As we've seen, the Bible commands us to worship in this way. Worshiping with God's people is a non-negotiable extension of the gospel. It is God's design for the collective worship of his people in this era of salvation history. Number two, edification. While we address God vertically in our corporate worship, we also are sharpened by one another horizontally. We've seen this really in every element of the corporate worship that we've discussed this morning. And there's going to be a lot more on this purpose next week when we think about edification. Number three, as a witness to the watching world. This one may be not as obvious. In corporate worship, God gathers his people in full view of a watching world. Exaltation and edification must not be at odds, and we should not think of them at odds, with evangelism. That's the mistake of the seeker-sensitive movement in recent decades. We don't need to design a worship service that is uplifting, that is casual, that is focused on life issues we believe would be of interest to non-Christians. In doing so, the gospel usually takes a back seat, and massive portions of scripture are neglected. In contrast, services that are soaked in the Bible, that are unafraid to deal with the whole canon of Scripture, yes, they might offend some, but they also paint a compelling and an accurate portrait of gospel hope for any unforgiven sinner who stumbles upon us. In this way, we hold out the water of life to a thirsty world and call it to turn away from the broken cisterns that never satisfy. That is the real worship war. It's a battle against idolatry, calling all people to serve the true king. When we come together, the world can see God's people like they cannot in any other context. As we are all spread around the city at other times, we come together, the world sees God's people, and there is a witness to that. Fourth, and this one I'm going to close with, corporate worship situates us in the context of the full breadth of redemptive history. What we're doing here may look rather quaint. If this is your first Sunday with us, you might say, eh, kind of shabby looking thing. You know, there's been a few mistakes. You've heard it's not the best thing you've ever seen in the world. Not much in the world's eye. But if our corporate worship is under the word, 
if it is saturated in the gospel, exalting of God and edifying to one another, then we are placing ourselves between the garden and the new Jerusalem. This is what that final sentence of the Carson definition gets at. This is really why I couldn't get rid of this thing. It's it's such a great sentence. All the elements of Christian corporate worship should aim at bringing to fulfillment the glories of antecedent revelation, what God has revealed before us in salvation history, and anticipate the consummation, what is still yet to come. Just take the Lord's Supper as an example of this. It's rooted in the Passover in Exodus, which is then fulfilled in Jesus, the Passover lamb, who wins the exodus of his people from slavery to sin by his death on the cross and points forward to the marriage supper of the lamb in glory. And we could do something like that with every element of our worship. One scholar puts it this way, just about the worship gathering in and of itself. Corporate worship serves the indispensable function of uniting us with all the saints, living and dead. It reminds us that we exist not merely as a congregation, as a church, but as part of the church, the people of God. Our service today finds its place in the middle of a vast assembly of worshipers across salvation history. It includes the faithful in Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, the faithful present at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the remnant who stood listening to Ezra read the word for six hours, the churches in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Corinth, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and that great throng that is still to form in Revelation 7. Let me read that for us. After this I looked, there before me, says the Apostle John, was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 